Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. Hello to each and every tiny itty bitty part of you. Why would I say it like that? Because we are talking about famous historical body parts today. And I just want to make sure that every single little bit of you knows how happy I am that you are here. But before those bits can be exposed to any more of this nonsense, you know what's coming. That's right. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things covering a range of adult subjects in an adult way. And you should be an adult too. And if you will persist in listening to this with your delicate shell-like ears, and if you happen to get offended... Don't come crying to us, because fair dues, we did tell you. Don't mind me, Betwixters. I am just putting together a Frankenstein's monster of historical body parts for today's episode. Huh. Okay, let's see what we've got. Frida Kahlo's iconic monobrow, mm, stunning. Marie Antoinette's wonky teeth, despite her best celebrity dentist's efforts. Then there's Queen Victoria's swollen armpits, fabulous stuff. And as we move down the body, there's Louis XIV's rear end. I mean, if it's good enough to inspire a national anthem, then it's damn sure good enough for me. And to tie things up, <clears throat> so to speak, we're gonna finish this off with Napoleon's penis. Beautiful, why not, eh? Apparently, Napoleon's shortened danglies were sliced off during an autopsy and have actually been put up for auction a few times in the 20th century. Want to know more about some of these historical appendages? I know that I do, and you have definitely come to the right place. Now, let's bring this beautiful, hairy, penisy specimen to life. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. Often, history is better told not so much by the grandiose moments such as battles and famous expeditions, but by the very bodies that lived through that. Sometimes, body parts carry a story better than a history book ever could. Joining us today is historian and fabulous friend of the show, Dr. Susie Edge, whose time as a junior doctor means that she has got skin in the game, as it were, when it comes to the most fascinating and iconic body parts throughout history. Check out her book, Vital Organs, for all of the juicy gossip. In the meantime, what were some of the trends that have defined our bodies throughout history? And is there any truth at all to the rumours about Hitler's ball? I am ready to get to the bottom of it if you are. Let's do this. 
Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Susie Edge. I am so excited to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm so good. I think it's been a, a bit over a year, hasn't it, since we last had a chat? It has, yes. We, <laughs> we had a chat about your book on monarch deaths and then it was the same day that the Queen died, September the 11th. That was so surreal. Yeah, we we can giggle about it now, I suppose, can't we? But on the day, it was um, yes. we had had such a giggle, and then um, the afternoon was slightly more somber, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yeah, the day itself that was a bit of a, a an awkward. Okay, well, maybe we won't put this particular episode out today. But I'm here to talk to you about your new book, which sounds incredible, Vital Organs, and you have written. I counted them, but is it thirty-seven? different chapters on various body parts of significance throughout history. So you have got things like Dwight Eisenhower's heart, uh, Jack Kerouac's liver, uh, Samuel Pepys's bladder, and it goes on and on and on. How did you make the choice of all the body parts that have ever existed uh, on anyone throughout history? How did you cut that down to, to the ones that you've got? I think first and foremost, I wanted to tell stories of particular people. I didn't want to just tell a story of, oh, you know, people would chop hands off if someone was caught thieving or things like that. I wanted specific people involved and then um, people from history that, that we might recognise. And, and a few, actually, that are a bit more obscure. Uh, and then I started, I actually started how a doctor would start when examining a body. I started at the top and I worked my way down. <laughs> I have to say my, my initial Google search history was mildly amusing. <laughs> it's amazing what I found and then where that led I have a lot of online followers who often make suggestions as well. So they were absolutely wonderful. And some stories I found were no more than a line in a, a paper somewhere, a suggestion, an academic had maybe suggested something and it was a big flurry in the newspapers and then nothing more. And I thought, well, obviously they didn't manage to dwell on that story. So they didn't make it in. There was one in particular about uh, Pavarotti's lungs, which I was just going to really get into, but it didn't go any further than just a suggestion in a paper. Uh, so there were some that weren't enough, weren't meaty enough for me. But uh, then others, as you say, they... they just jump off the page. And there must have been ones that you left out. I mean, you mentioned Pavarotti's lungs. I was going to ask you, like, whose body parts almost made the list, but just couldn't quite... I don't think Rasputin's dung has, has made your list, but that's quite a fabled body part. Did you just decide Rasputin's penis has had too much press, we need to do something else? Rasputin's penis didn't make the chapter list, but it certainly got a good chunk of airtime in the uh, Now in we're the talking. Yeah. yeah, because it's as good a story as the one I was telling, which was Napoleon's penis. <laughs> I love this idea that in the West we have Napoleon's penis and Russia they claim to have Rasputin's in a jar. And I love them standing at the border and shouting, our penis is bigger than your penis. <laughs> I think this just sort of sums up the state of the world just now, doesn't it? Or certainly when I started writing this book, which was just when Putin had invaded Ukraine. And some of the things that you're talking about, they actually survive, don't they? Like, well, or at least people think they survive, like Rasputin's penis is in a jar somewhere and Napoleon's penis, we'll talk about that one in a minute, but that's kind of in a private collection <laughs> somewhere. But like some of them you're talking about, Frida Kahlo's eyebrows, who we'll talk about as well, they, they're not like in a case somewhere, but a lot of this stuff is, like it's survived. 
Yes, there's a lot of bones that are still out there on display or being used by universities or museums. It's not just a sort of trivial, superficial going, oh, look, we've got bones of somebody who's two, three hundred years old. These actually bring up a lot of ethical, moral questions uh, within the book as well, which I really enjoyed discussing. Some of the bones, maybe there was consent. Some of it there wasn't. I talked about mm. the giant um, Charles Byrne, whose bones were on display for years in the Hunterian. I went to see them because I'm a hypocrite, and I, I couldn't find them because they had uh, shut down for refurbishing the museum. And when I did go back, uh, they weren't on display. And they said, well, he had requested that his bones not be put on display. He had specifically said he didn't want to be dissected by the surgeons, and they got hold of him anyway. They're still there if you want to go and see them, but they're not, they're not you know, prominently on display. And then there's others like William Burke, whose bones were put on display, him having been hanged. And as part of his sentence, his bones were to be kept by the medical school, which I find fascinating. They're at the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Medical School, as well as his skin, which was used to bind a book as well. That's on display. There was a police museum in Edinburgh along the, the Royal Mile. I don't know if it's still there. And right at the back, you could go and look. And there was a Bible or a purse that was said to have been made out of the skin of William Burke. And like when you looked at it really, really closely, you could see like the sort of the dried paws and like the little hairs on it as well. So if it was his skin, but it was definitely somebody's skin. It's grim. <laughs> the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia had a project for a long time, which went around the world studying books in libraries that were claiming to be made of human skin. And so far they've discovered 18 of them have been made that way. My favourite thing from the Mutter collection is their uh, necklace of genital warts that they've got. Like somebody in the 19th century decided they needed to make a specimen of gentle warts and they did it by stringing them along a necklace and then suspending it inside a jar. And it's just the weirdest, weirdest object. We don't do enough of that now. <laughs> All right, okay. So we've got to talk about some of the stories, some of the things that you actually dig out. Royal Bottoms get a look in, which I'm very, very pleased about. And... All right, go on. You tell the story because I love this one. The uh, Louis the Fourteenth. I always get my French kings muddled up, you know. But it, they're all called Louis, and they've all got the Roman numerals. Yes, Louis the Fourteenth. Tell me about his bottom. Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. He was written about and written about. His uh, loyal servants were, were just writing everything from you know everything that he produced was sniffed and prodded and poked and 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 they had a lot to say and he was a bit of a hypochondriac and he had a lot of problems but one of his problems was that one day he felt a little tingling in his rear end and as we all do he prodded and poked and made it worse Ooh. and he made it so bad that this little pimple or infection came along and it turned into a, an abscess his doctor's would try all sorts of things, poultices, rubbing it, uh, putting hot irons on it to try and cauterize oh it. None of them worked and actually it made it worse and it created a fistula. So a fistula is a channel from one open area to another really. So effectively he created himself a new hole next to the original one. Oh. And out of that came old pus and poop and everything that, that you find down there. And eventually his physicians, who were the learned men, the university men, they decided maybe they couldn't get much further and they called upon a surgeon. So a surgeon called Felix came along and he had a look and he said, well, we can probably do something about that, but I need to practice. So he went out into the streets of Paris and he practiced on people that he found in hospitals and prisons. And he developed an operation and he developed tools as well. 
one of which was called The King's Probe, which I love. Oh, nice. And he went back to the king and he spent a good three or four hours between the king's legs de-roofing this fistula and getting all of the pus out and all of the gunk out. And he went in with a long blade all the way along and lifted it. So he would cut the tube at the top, if you like, and open it up. Yeah, yeah. So, so take the roof off almost. Uh, of this long, long tube that had been created. And of course, this was done without any antiseptics or oh. anaesthetics as well. It's incredible that the king survived that, but survive he did. The part I love most, even though I love all the goo and the guts and the gore and imagining this operation happening, the part I love most is that this became so fashionable in the king's court that people would be asking for fistula operations whether or not they had a fistula. Oh my God! Wow! Yeah, then it became fashionable to to be waddling around with a with a with a sore bum. Would would he at least have been drunk or stoned or something, or was this literally that like someone's going to cut into your bottom completely sober? Yeah, whiskey and opiates they they used as well, but they have an effect on the body in terms of bleeding and what have you. So they're not ideal. Wow. Otherwise, we'd just be knocking back that sort of stuff before operations nowadays. <laughs> wouldn't they? It's nice and cheap. But yeah, they would have had something and herbs and ideas but not knocked out as we would be today not nearly as unconscious as i would like to have been and apparently this rather bizarre and gruesome operation is linked to the national anthem is this true <laughs> yeah so afterwards there was lots of celebration there was lots of singing and handel happened to be there wandering around and he heard this tune and he thought i like that and he took it away and he added some words to it and now we sing uh, god save the king uh, to that tune and it's, it's used across uh, anthems and uh, all around the place but yeah certainly God Save the King came out of the fact that the king in France had survived a bum operation that's wild that sounds like one of those urban has that bit as other people out there they go no that didn't happen Handel um, he made it up I've, I've actually had a book review that said well we can't trust anything that's been said because Handel didn't compose that tune and that's actually not oh, what right. I said oh, what I said oh. was that he heard the tune in the streets so it had been around a very long time there are a lot of origin stories for the tune of the national mm. anthem but I quite like the one that's associated with a, with a bum operation so that's the that's the one I'm sticking to I think that that's absolutely fantastic that's what I'm going for and another area that, that of royalty that I'd never considered before, the armpit, the humble armpit, in particular Queen Victoria's armpit, who also had, I don't know, not like an armpit fistula. You tell the story about Queen Victoria's armpit. It didn't quite get to fistula stage, luckily, but she was at Balmoral and she had, like Louis XIV before her, she'd felt a little uh, funny feeling, but this time it was in her armpit. And of course, like you do, she prodded it and poked it until it got worse. And she, she developed an abscess in her armpit that grew, it was described to the size of an orange. Ooh. It got to the point where it was so painful and she couldn't really move her arm above her head and she needed help. And the chap to call on at the time was uh, Lister, who was a surgeon in Edinburgh, who was developing antiseptic techniques. They got him up. He brought up his machine to spray carbolic acid all, all around the place, sprayed some in her face, which she didn't really like very much. And he went in there with his knife and he cut out the abscess and got all the pus out. And he did it in the cleanest environment that he could. And again, the Queen survived. And she was championing that then. And I think, you know, if you're going to be trying to develop new things to have the, the king or queen on your side is a very good idea so before that antiseptic had not been widely used the germ theory was pretty new 
before that, it was this idea that uh, miasma was causing disease. So any smell that was coming, any nasty smell that was coming off something rotten was the problem. Or it, or it came from God or you know something else like that. And germ theory was very new. And it's something that Lister had been working on, working on um, the work of Pasteur. And it was, it was really coming to the fore. Some people were very anti the idea. They didn't want to be shown up. New ideas take a very long time, especially in the world of medicine, where you're dealing with egos and ancient ideas. These still now things take a very long time to get from idea to, you know, operating table or, or clinic. There were people who, who didn't like this idea, but Lister showed that he could reduce the post-surgical infection rates by using antiseptics like carbolic. Am I right in thinking that it wasn't even that there was resistance to the idea that things should be clean and that that might actually help things, but there was actually a, a group of surgeons who took pride in being really filthy. They liked wearing their aprons covered in blood because they felt that it was like a status symbol of, look how many people I've operated on, almost like a footballer covered in mud after a game. And they were really proud of that. Have I made that up or is that true? No, it's true that they would wear aprons and the grubbier the better, the more blood on them the better. You know, they'd be hanging up in the operating theatre for everyone to see. It was a big thing to show that they had been covered in all that blood. And actually the idea before that a separating wound, a wound that was oozing pus, was a healing wound. And so to have all that stuff was, was a sign that all good things were happening. They were against the idea of um, germ theory. Well, the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, um, which is in the book as well, I talked about his hands, is a favourite story of mine. What's that story? You've got to tell that story. Don't leave us hanging. Ignaz Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician in the 19th century who was working in a hospital both dissecting cadavers, trying to find out about anatomy and physiology and teach. But he was also there delivering babies in a maternity ward as well. And what he realised was that the mortality rates in the maternity ward were higher when he and his fellow doctors were involved compared to the midwives. There were different sections of the hospital, one where more serious problems were happening and, and the doctors would go. What he realised was that they were going straight from dissecting cadavers to delivering babies. And there could be something, he called them cadaverous particles, that were being transferred from the dead bodies onto the mums, and this was increasing the mortality rate. And he also realised that maybe washing hands might be a good idea. Crazy, crazy thought, isn't it? Washing hands <laughs> might, might be helpful. Uh, he did some experiments to show that washing hands between seeing patients, between seeing dead bodies and delivering babies, reduced the mortality rates. And he was laughed out of town because the doctors were so proud. They were, it could not possibly be that they were the ones causing this problem. Their hands were not dirty. This was not happening. And the, the problem that Ignaz Semmelweis had was the, this was very, very early when germ theory was being thought of. And he was a bit too soon. And of course, he had nothing to back it up. He couldn't say, he couldn't show, he couldn't look under a microscope and show off these cadaverous particles, as he called them, because he didn't have that opportunity. And so he was just a little bit too early. And, and that's the, the story that's told of, you know, this chap who was eventually ended up in, a, in an asylum, beaten to death. Ironically, he, got a, he was beaten and he got cuts on his hands and he became septic and he died. And it wasn't that long later that Pasteur and, and Lister were doing their thing in, in terms of helping people with antiseptics, helping people with, with hand washing and all the rest. It's still hard to get people to wash their hands now, which, is, which I find incredible. 
he wasn't the only one. There was a, a doctor in Aberdeen as well who um, he was very good at taking records, and he stood up and, and said, well, it's this midwife and that midwife and that midwife that are causing the problems. And, of course, they chased him out of town because they were like, you're not blaming this on us. And Queen Victoria's armpit helped, I don't know say made it fashionable, but then if fistulas suddenly became fashionable in France because of Louis Fourteenth, maybe people wanted sore armpits over here? <laughs> I, don't, I don't recall any stories of people thinking that might be a good idea, but maybe, you never know. People Just are like that, aren't armpits they? are all the rage. <laughs> and she, she tried chloroform as well, didn't she, Queen Vicky? Not for, like, fun, but, like, for a medical... <laughs> was it childbirth, actually, they chloroformed her for? Her last child, Leopold, I think his name was, was born with the use of uh, anaesthetic, yeah. If the monarch's doing it, if it's all right for Queen Victoria, yep. then it's all right for the rest of us. Too posh to push, too posh <laughs> to be conscious, actually, is what that one was. I'll be back with Susie after this short break. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. I don't know about you, but one thing that bugs me is having to plan and cook healthy-ish delicious meals every single day. Frankly, I think it's time that could be better spent. You might be saying, hey Kate, what's the solution? Well, luckily for you and me, Factor has made it super easy to eat quickly and deliciously. Their fresh, chef-created, dietitian approved meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. With over 35 meals to choose from each week, you can tailor your orders to fit your dietary needs and your schedule, even pausing and rescheduling deliveries if you need to. These are restaurant-quality meals that require no prep, make no mess, and are delivered right to your door. With Factor, you can take the stress out of healthy living. Head to factormeals.com slash betwixt50 and use the code betwixt50 to get 50% off. That's code betwixt50 at factormeals.com slash betwixt50 to get 50% off. Being part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families past and present from all over the world to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. 
He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. One of my favourite people throughout history, I think, is Marie Antoinette. I've got a bit of a soft spot for her. It's the excess and the absolute ludicrous ignorance of what was going on around. I know I shouldn't admire that, but it was just so breathtaking. I can't help but look at it and just go, I am kind of impressed by that level of stupidity. And so I've got a bit of a soft spot for her. And you write about her teeth. And I had no idea that Marie's teeth were a bit of an issue for her. She was young when it was decided, wasn't it, that she was going to be married to what would become Louis XVI. But an ambassador went along to see her and decided that she wasn't quite good looking enough because her teeth were in all directions and something needed to be done. So she was put through a pretty horrific ordeal for a good few months where she was given what we think of as one of the first braces. It was a, a device known as Fauchard's bandeau, which to me just sounds oh, painful, doesn't it? But it was put in her mouth yeah. to change the shape of her arch and gold wires were wrapped around her teeth and were moved daily. They were early braces. I don't think my children are going to be going around with gold wires through their braces, no. but it was a similar scenario. And for a good six months, they were tightened and tightened and tightened, and she went through a huge amount of pain, but came out Jeez, the other end with man. teeth that were acceptable for the court. One of the things that I didn't realise about, and perhaps I should have done, is that she was a descendant of the Habsburg dynasty, who are a bit of a medical marvel in and of themselves, aren't they? And they notoriously had something called the Habsburg jaw. Could you tell us a little bit about who the Habsburgs were and why they're interesting from a medical point of view? When I first looked at the story of Marie Antoinette and her teeth, it took me a little while to make that connection. And when I did, and I realised that she was of a Habsburg descent, I actually went, oh, OK, that, <laughs> maybe that makes a little bit of sense that she had herself a little bit of the Habsburg jaw. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate Habsburg jaw problems and medical problems would have been Charles II of Spain. Mm. He was the last of the Habsburg kings. He was a product of years and years and years of inbreeding. They kept it in the family, the Habsburgs. They kept everything in the family. Cousins were marrying cousins and aunts marrying nephews and nieces. And the sort of family coefficient, if you like, for Charles II, it was as if his parents were even closer than brother and sister <gasps> when it came to Shit. looking at the genetics and who married who and who procreated with who. So Charles II had a lot of problems. He couldn't talk before he was sort of six or seven. He couldn't eat very well because he had this classic huge Habsburg jaw sticking out. So his teeth didn't come together and he would just drool and dribble. He actually married twice but didn't have any children and no one thinks it was the fault of the Queen. <laughs> and so this his death led to the War of Spanish Succession, years and years of, of violence. And th and that really was because it was the ultimate after hundreds of years of inbreeding. And what happens is that when you meet somebody who isn't related to you, the chances of you having a similar genetic problem being passed down are slimmer. And when you start getting closer and closer and procreating with people whose genetics are similar and similar, more similar, you run the risk of having genetic problems that are the same. And therefore you don't have one that's dominant 
that wins and is okay, you have two recessive genes or whatever that come together and, and you end up with a problem. And the problem, the phenotype, if you like, the outside view is for Charles II was physical in many ways and mental in many ways. Incredibly, the boy survived to the 36 years old. He was the only one left, really. A lot of them died, either they weren't born or they died in infancy because of all the problems. But he incredibly survived to that long. Is there an official medical term for the Habsburg jaw or was it just something that was kind of unique to them? Even in the portraits that are supposed to be quite flattering, it is this like enormous descending chin that I don't even know how you describe it. They look a bit like an anteater. Is that an actual medical condition or is it just unique to them? It was unique to them because of the inbreeding. It had happened right. in the family because of that. And there was a group who had a look, a chap called Roman Villas had a look at all the different portraits that were done. And it's quite a tricky one, as you say, because they were flattering. So we don't really know how much, to what extent the problems were. But they looked at a lot of the portraits and then they got a bunch of um, surgeons, maxillofacial surgeons, to have a look and, and rank the extent of the problems in the face and in the jaw. They took those numbers and they compared them to how closely related those people were and they found that this was indeed a, an issue related wow. to the inbreeding and that's why marie antoinette had dodgy teeth i don't think i've read anywhere that she has a weird jaw no i mean it wasn't i think it, it wasn't hugely prominent for her but perhaps that was her manifestation of it so when she went to the guillotine she at least had perfectly straight teeth yeah, I mean, that actually had that going for her, I suppose, as her, as her head bobbed along. Oh. It was uh, had a nice smile on it. Oh, oh, dear. Can we talk historical penises? It's my favourite subject. I've been, I've been leading <laughs> up to it. So you just you just made me laugh. I you know I know everybody. Everybody wants to go there in the they end. Do. These are just holding questions, aren't they? they Marianne Antoinette's teeth and everything. But really, really I don't really care. I do. <laughs> it's not true. I really, really do care about Marie Antoinette's teeth, but not as much possibly as I care about Napoleon's penis, because that's an amazing story. How did anybody even? Get this item, there are various... Th you tell me, this. Napoleon's willing. Let's talk about that. When Napoleon died in exile, he had a an autopsy. There were 16 people there around the bed, and all of them agreed that he died of stomach cancer. It was something that had killed his father, and it was very obvious to them that that was what was going on within him. Napoleon had other ideas. He thought that he might have been poisoned, and there were a lot of good reasons for that as well. The symptoms that he had may well have been uh, due to arsenic. However, when he was lying there, the surgeon who had cut him open and done what he had to do also decided strangely, and we don't know why, he decided to take the blade and cut off Napoleon's penis. There's a story that he did it for the priest that was on the island. Napoleon had once called the priest impotent and he didn't like that very much. So as to get him back, he thought that posthumously cutting off his willy might be helpful. So he gave it to the priest and the priest smuggled it off the island. Right. And this penis for years did the rounds. It was bought and sold by booksellers, strangely, which I find quite funny. But booksellers were buying and selling it, putting it on display. Sometimes it went on display and nobody was very impressed. And eventually it was bought by a urologist, which is very appropriate, a chap called Latimer who was American. And Latimer said that what he didn't want was for this penis to be on display anymore. He didn't like this idea of it being shown around. And as a urologist, somebody who deals with that part of the anatomy, he studied it and he x-rayed it. And he said, for certainty, this is a penis. Okay. He couldn't say whose. It's not like he could x-ray it and say that was definitely Napoleon's. 
Yeah. But Latimer kept hold of it for years in America. It's now in New Jersey. And when he died, it was passed on to his daughter. And his daughter keeps it in a little case, in a suitcase, in a basement in New Jersey. That's where it lives today. Do you imagine that, having potentially Napoleon's willy in your cellar? That's... I'd get that out all the time for party tricks, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, I'd probably have it more more displayed, to be honest. But she doesn't like any... She doesn't allow anybody to photograph it or to film it. Oh. And there was once a chat with the French. Do the French want it back? Do they want to put it in um, uh, the Pantheon, I think, where Napoleon is? And then they said... They actually said, no, we are not touching the penis, which I think is very funny from the French. <laughs> it's poor old Napoleon. I mean, like... He was a military genius, obviously, he has his critics, but that's just, it's so undignifying of just that a part of your body, your penis is going to end up in a woman's cellar. Have they ever tried to sell it? Has there ever been anyone that tried to put it under auction? I don't even know how you would sell that. It was over the years, because we're talking a couple of hundred years since Napoleon died, so it was bought and sold in these collections, and Latimer himself bought it. Latimer said that he was a urologist, and he said that he was taking this penis to hide it away from the world because he didn't want it on display. But it turns out that Latimer was was actually a bit of a weird one. He collected a lot of sinister war-related memorabilia. He had been there at uh, Nuremberg, and he had taken things from there, noose and all sorts of dodgy things and he had supposedly had a piece of the shirt that Lincoln was wearing covered in blood when he was shot and he had a piece of the upholstery from the car where um, JFK had been shot so he had quite a few weird sinister things in his collection whether or not they are still with his daughter I don't know I only know I was only only interested in the penis Kate (laughs) I admit it but it's never been up for sale? Not recently, no. Not since Latimer got hold of it in the, in the 60s, I think. And she's just said no, she's not sort of being involved Fair. with anything like that. And so the French aren't interested, which I find quite funny. I bet even if you looked at it, it wouldn't even resemble a penis today if it's been passed around so much and kind of not properly conserved and booksellers and all the rest of it. I think it would probably just look like a little piece of leather now. That's exactly how it's been described as a little shriveled up piece right. of leather. And I think that's why the Russians quite like the idea of what they claim to be Rasputin's penis, the giant thing that is, Which I is know, massive. Or something, is absolutely massive. I think they quite like that. They're like, ours is huge compared to yours. Has it been shown to be a sea cucumber, this thing that was supposed to be Rasputin's willy, this thing that like you know could club people to death with? Is that a penis? I mean, looking at it, it doesn't look very penisy to me. <laughs> I've seen a few. Being a doctor, obviously. Mm. And I don't know, it looks remarkably large and not very penisy. Mm. It's quite it's hairy at one end. Okay. I haven't looked really closely. I'd like to go across to Moscow and have a good look. I would too. A sea cucumber, again, is a very specific idea, isn't it? It is. He was supposed to be very well hung, was Rasputin. Well, I mean, uh, maybe that's why he got up to what he got up to and got away with what he got away with. I think so. And while I've got you here, I have to ask you as a, as a final inquiry about Hitler's bowl. <laughs> Please tell me the story of Hitler's <sighs> testicle, because <laughs> if there's anyone I can be childish with, it's got to be you. <laughs> of course. I mean, it's a real non-story. There are so many bigger things to be concerned about. It all to me seems like this huge propaganda story You know this song, Hitler has only got one ball and the others in the Albert Hall. And it goes on to talk about the others. I think it talks about Himmler and 
Goebbels maybe as well and talks about them, but nobody really brings that up much. I didn't know there were other verses. There's more. It goes on. Well, this is it, isn't it? You haven't heard the rest because this is nope. the bit that's taken and, you know, Hitler's only got one ball. There's, there's a lot of speculation over the years as to did he lose one in a, when he was on the Somme? Possibly. <laughs> and there are people who propped up and said, yes, I saw him when he was injured and, he, and he'd lost, and he was bleeding in that area, so maybe he lost something. And there's other stories that he was born with uh, crypto-orchidism, so he, nothing dropped, or at least only one side dropped when the chance came. And all of these are stories, of course, to discredit him and to try and belittle him. And weirdly for me, we and this is a theme that comes up a lot in the book, actually, is that we use body parts and disease and scars and problems with the body to show that somebody's evil yeah and we still do it we still do it in james bond movies and the like you know somebody's got a scar they must be an evil person if somebody's got a problem with their testicles obviously that means they're going to rampage through europe killing millions of people this is often happening and it happened as soon as vladimir putin went into ukraine last year the year before is it as soon as he did that, people were showing pictures of him with a bloated face saying, this man must be sick. He must be having treatment for cancer. Look at him. He's obviously on right. steroids because they want to maybe justify the terrible things that he's doing because he's having to deal with this physical problem. Yeah. I find that very funny. And, and it was certainly used with Hitler as well. That he obviously, he obviously rampaged through Europe, killing millions of people because he had a problem that actually a lot of boys have. It's not that uncommon. It's not like knowing that piece of additional information, if even if it was true, would significantly sway anyone's opinion of Hitler. It's not like anyone was on the fence and just needed that little bit of <laughs> testicle information to really be like, yeah, he was fucking horrible, wasn't he? It's like, you don't need that. But it's <laughs> a really ancient belief, that one, that if somebody is evil or wicked, they will have a manifestation of it on their body. And we still do that, don't we? The Richard the Third thing that Shakespeare described him as having this huge hunchback and all the rest of it, probably none of that was true, but it's all to represent the physical evilness of this person. We still do it. And I think when it comes to creating fiction or art or movies, it's understood now that it, we don't like that very much, but it's going to be very difficult to find another way to represent evil beyond problems with the body because we've done it for so long you know how else do you do it and i, I do you're right nobody's going to look at hitler and go oh well that explains it then poor guy <laughs> oh never mind that's what happened maybe it was all right then it's a strange thing that we do we don't want anyone who's that wicked and awful and horrendous to a have a normal sex life or b have a normal body it's like we need them to have been fucked up in every single way there's so many rumours that swirl around someone like Hitler's sex life and people like Rasputin and all the rest of it. It's like we need them to be degenerate in some way, as if that amplifies what they were already doing. Indeed. And disease as well. You know, somebody disease. obviously, uh, we don't like them very much. We're going to give them syphilis for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was doing the rounds when, it, when Donald Trump was in power. I saw so many memes that he must have alzheimer's and all the rest of it and it was it's that, that sort of strange discrediting and you don't need to because he's already awful like you don't need <laughs> that piece of information so my final question to you susie for this absolutely phenomenal book and it's such a clever idea and i love it so much what part of you would be significant for your vital organs if somebody hundreds of years from now was going to write about a part of your body that was of significance. What would you what would you hope they wrote about? Uh, okay, I have talked in the book about Douglas Bader's legs, 
and I've talked to who else came up in terms of legs I don't know I think I'd just like to be really really different I'm not going to say oh my brain obviously because I like to think and I'm not going to say oh my heart because I'm such a sweet person what I'm actually going to say is that I have a significant pair of rugby players thighs which I am really <laughs> proud of and they've got me they've got me playing rugby to a very high level and they've got me a black belt in my martial art and I adore showing everybody that I have really good set of thighs on me. I've never done because I've never seen your thighs. Why would I have seen your thighs? <laughs> <laughs> this is a new type of TikTok that we can start exploring. Whenever I see you on film, Susie, I'm going to be there like trying to I want to see. I want to see the thighs. I want to know. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always headshot. I'm always headshotting everything. You are. But I'm really, I'm, I'm very proud of my rugby, rugby playing martial arts thighs. I should get them out more often. <laughs> you should whip these babies out more often. <laughs> if people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? And your thighs? Where can they find you? <laughs> I'm gonna have to make a TikTok about my <laughs> thighs are. now, aren't I? Well, most of the time I'm on TikTok at Susie Edge, but I do hang about on uh, Instagram as well at suze.edge and also on X formerly known as Twitter I hate saying that at Susie Edge and give us the full title of the book so people can run to buy it it's called Vital Organs A History of the World's Most Famous Body Parts thank you so much for talking to me today I have so much fun with you it is far too much fun isn't it what's next Thank you for listening and thank you so much to Susie for joining me. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you'd like us to explore a subject or maybe you just fancied saying hello and a happy new year back, then you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We've got episodes on everything from prehistoric sex to the history of swearing all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Tom DeLaghi and produced by Stuart Beckworth. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.